You are listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, Episode 9, in which the man without fear runs rampant through a very busy night of terrorists, drug addicts, and hemophiliacs. Welcome to the final episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast for 2013. I am J. David Weeder. You can call me Dave. And this week I'm doing something entirely different. I let a random number generator choose which issue to review this week, and it came up with Daredevil number 139, not too far off of the issue we covered last week. Now this is going to end up being a nice palate cleanser to end 2013 on as we prepare to dive into the massive read-through of Frank Miller's Daredevil material. And man, 2014, speaking of, this is a year that's going to bring us the Daredevil Netflix series, or at least development thereof, an all-new number one issue for The Man Without Fear, and the 50th anniversary of Daredevil. An anniversary that I hope to celebrate with a bang in the fall, which I know is a bit late in the year, but when we get to it, I think you'll be pleased, you'll understand that I'm kind of aiming for something. In fact, I'm hard at work on those plans right now, and the more I work on it, the more excited I get about the potential of it. I don't want to spill the beans yet. I mean, we're looking at scribbling on a notebook. But if half my concept lines up, it may be one of the strongest episodes of this podcast. And that isn't even accounting for the journey we're about to embark on in one week's time with the Frank Miller material. I mean, this is good, hardcore stuff. I'm already several episodes into Man Without Fear, the miniseries, and I'm getting some nice thoughts, good discussion. I'm really looking forward to your emails and your take on it. Speaking of discussion, I need to give a big, loud shout-out to the irredeemable shag of the Fire and Water podcast and FirestormFan.com. See, I am kind of timid when it comes to promoting the show. I do put it out there. I just assume that the audience will find it. However, the reason I don't hype it too much is the actual show may not live up to the hype. So I don't, I mean, I'm, I feel a little bit self-conscious going shouting to the heavens you know, saying, listen to the show, it's great, it's a Daredevil podcast, you'll love it. Shag, however, has no such qualms. And he's really good at building a community around shows. Look at Fire and Water, one of the best communities in the internet, I'll even say that. Uh, so on the social networks, he's been talking the show up a lot. And for somebody who does a show of the caliber of Fire and Water to support my show, that means a lot. So I definitely want to say thank you, Shag. And in fact, overall, the reaction to the show has been solid and very positive which makes me really, really content. Also kind of intimidated that some episodes may not be up to par. For example, when I sat down to record today, I had had a long night of no sleep, or very little sleep to be more accurate. I'm a little little off, and I'm terrified that this episode's not going to come out as well as it could, that my voice isn't strong enough, I'm a little stopped up from the weather. But my promise to you and Shag and everybody is this. I'm going to come to the table every week with love and fandom, if not technical skill in in communicating and expressing it. But that will always be here. And I want to once again say thank you, Shag, and everybody should be listening to the Fire and Water podcast. I'd play a promo for the show, but they don't have one yet. This is where Dave looks at the camera. But thank you all. The the downloads have been solid. The reaction has been really, really good. I'm, I'm really thankful for all of you. 
and I was I was actually very terrified to the reaction because I was working blind for the first uh, about three or four episodes because I was producing them far ahead of the release. There were several in the can before the show started, so I had no idea how my take on the material would be received. So I'm very glad to hear that it is catching on, that there are a lot of people who do love the show. And I'm really glad to be reaching other fans of the character. And if I'm really lucky, maybe making a few along the way. But again, that's not the goal of this show. The show is just to enjoy Daredevil comics, read Daredevil comics, and talk about them. And this week, though, as I mentioned, it's a little bit different. It's a very busy issue. One that I, I wouldn't have read on my own unless it was a straight read-through, but there's a lot happening in the one night of Daredevil's life. It's a fast-paced issue, and it's perfectly timed for this episode, actually. So after a podcast promo break, we will be cracking open Daredevil number 139, but first, a promo for a podcast that you should seek out. Hi, my name is Mike, and I like comic books. Okay, so what do you think about Ben Affleck being Batman? No, I said I like comic books. That's a movie, and I couldn't care less. Well, it's a comic book movie. Really? Did you go see the magazine movie? Or do you watch the television book? I like comic books. You know, those things make for paper, especially the old ones. Whoa, those things. Are they CGC 9.8? No, you're missing the point. I like to actually read comic books, especially the old ones. I like them so much I even build a website to tell other people about them. Does it have any information about uh, Avengers 2? No, it has info about actual comic books. Lots of covers, creator credits, character appearance lists, story synopsis notes, and so much more. Hmm, that sounds interesting. Where can I find it? It's at mikesamazingworld.com. Do I have to read anything? Reading makes my brain hurt. You can just look at the pictures if you want. Or you can listen to my podcast, where I talk about the history of DC Comics, especially the old ones. So I can listen to a comic book podcast? It's a podcast about comic books. You can find it at twotruefreaks.com. What's it called? Mike's Amazing World of DC History. History? You mean like before Twitter? Yes, the world actually did exist long before Twitter. My show is for comic book fans, especially the old ones. So check out Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the website, and listen to Mike's Amazing World of DC History, the podcast, for information and fun related to actual comic books, especially the old ones. Welcome back from that promo for Mike's Amazing World of DC History. And if you don't know Mike, you may not be a podcaster. He owns and operates Mike's Amazing World of Comics at DCIndexes.com, which indexes comics from all publishers. Well, the bulk of publishers, any of, the, any of them that were important at least. And it's the main tool of podcasters and bloggers everywhere for publication dates, creator credits, so on and so forth. Just like in this very episode. And if you want to have your mind blown with facts, his show is a one-stop shop. However, if you want to talk about Daredevil, you're already in the right spot. And this week's issue, chosen by random number generators, Daredevil number 139, the November 1976 issue, 
The cover by Gil Kane has Dee Dee in the very center swinging at the reader with his concentric radar circles emanating out from him. Surrounding Daredevil is actually a trio of scenes, one of Daredevil rushing toward a young blonde woman with an unconscious child in her arms, another with Daredevil grabbing a man as he is blown out of a window by an explosion, and the third has Daredevil fighting a group of standard thugs. Several blurbs tell us that this is the most action-packed saga ever. Danger, adventure, shocks, this one has them all. And it is bombastic. It's just flat out full of stuff. The eye bounces around, and while the parts are cool, the multiple scenes are distracting. It works against the image as a whole. I've seen far worse covers though, and I've seen far worse from Gil Kane. At least this time he remembered Daredevil's red lenses. Yes, I am still hung up on that. Details matter. The only real historical note is this was 1976, so it was the Bicentennial, which is cool for US history, not so much for the comic realm. I'll admit I was a bit leery of letting the random number generator choose the issue number because well, we could have ended up in the jungle with Kazar or worse. But I'm glad to say that the generator came through with a fairly solid issue and one that I was really kind of fascinated with. I hope you will be too. It's a one-off, which is excellent, and kind of has a lot going for it. So let's open up Daredevil number 139 and see what it has in store. The story is entitled A Night in the Life, written by Marv Wolfman, penciled by Sal Buscema, inked by Jim Mooney, lettered by John Costanza, and colored by Michelle Wolfman. Daredevil swings over the city, thinking about the parade of team-ups he's had lately with the likes of Iron Man, Ghost Rider, Black Panther, and Submariner, and deciding to get some rest. Matt gets back to his brownstone and changes into some comfy civilian duds while thinking that he is just really into Heather Glynn, and she's more than just a stand-in for Karen. Convince me. Um, sorry, that was me. Was I being catty? I'm sorry. Meanwhile, a frantic woman bursts into a doctor's office, pushing her way into the doctor's exam room where the doc is with a patient. The doctor chides her for interrupting his work, but relents when he learns that her hemophiliac son has vanished, creating a great danger for the boy, because hemophiliacs, you see, for those that don't know, when they bleed, they don't clot, so they just keep bleeding and bleeding and bleeding. The doctor calls the police, who tell him that they can't go looking for the boy because they have this mad bomber blowing up buildings every half hour. And back at his apartment, Matt hears the radio news story about the mad bomber. See how that synchronizes? Who will continue to blow up buildings until his drug addict wife is brought to him. And Matt decides that rest is not in his cards and leaps into action. Okay, let's stop there for a moment to start with... Daredevil had been all over the place during this time, so it makes sense that we acknowledge it. After all, it might sell other books. Those books might sell this book. The ecosystem of comics is held tight. But we also get the idea right out of the gate that Daredevil's activities have taken their toll. And he's tired, he's worn down, and this is before the action of the issue begins. Which is the next panel. And we get Strangers. Yes, a mother we've never seen, worried about a child we have not seen, and a doctor that we don't know. Now, of these three strangers, only the doctor gets a name, Dr. Barrett. The concerned mother vanishes for the rest of the book, and for all of his grandstanding and yelling at the police to look for the boy, the doctor isn't seen again for the rest of the issue either. However, the boy is a key player in the comic itself, and he never gets a name at all. He is constantly referred to as the little boy or kid. I even triple-checked the issue to see if a Billy, Wayne, Gary, or any other generic name, but nothing. Nothing is given to him. Now, the easiest way to get a reader to care about a character is to give that character a name. Background characters like Bobby the security guard, who gets killed off after appearing for two panels, has more of an effect than a nameless henchman who lives just as long. At first, I'm thinking, Marv Wolfman is a skilled writer. He should know this, yet he is a skilled writer. He takes another path, which we're going to see in a moment. I just wanted to earmark that. And we're told that there's a mad bomber on the loose, 
and he's blown up at least three locations by this point. Is it me or is this issue going the way of a Charlie's Angels episode? I mean, without Jacqueline Smith and Kate Jackson and low-cut tops. Well, wait, what would an episode of Charlie's Angels be without low-cut tops? Uh, I need to rethink my references. After all, Daredevil doesn't remove his mask and let his hair cascade down like a waterfall. Nor does Foggy call him on a speakerphone while remaining unseen with a stern yet loving fatherly voice, and Heather Glynn is definitely no Bosley. Okay, so nothing like Charlie's Angels, maybe Hunter. Yeah, yeah, it's an episode of Hunter where Dee Dee McCall and Hunter have to stop a mad bomber while a child's life is at risk. Wow, that sounds like it came right out of a 1984 edition of TV Guide. And for those that are sitting there wondering, what happened to Fred Dreyer of Hunter? He voiced Sergeant Rock on Justice League, he voices several characters on Snake and Mongoose, and he hangs out at the Playboy Mansion a lot. So, he did okay for himself. But the story is set up in three pages. Mad Bomber looking for his wife, missing hemophiliac boy on the streets, and Daredevil suiting up and getting back on the case, which is where we kick in with the second act. Daredevil is out and about on the prowl in the city, and his first stop is through the window of Archer Emmett, a man involved, somehow, with the narcotics trade. Daredevil demands information on the Mad Bomber's wife, or he'll smash his face like a jigsaw puzzle. Archer doesn't know anything, but Daredevil puts him to work, calling the various dealers in the city to track down any intel he can find. Elsewhere in the city, a woman named Joyce Hillary finds her way to a back-alley drug dealer named Slate and asks for drugs. But she doesn't get any because she has no money, and goes to another alley where the withdrawal symptoms overtake her. And there she is spotted by a young boy who tries to comfort her, but he falls down and begins to bleed, which is dangerous since he is the missing hemophiliac. Well, who didn't see that coming? With that pot coming to a boil, Daredevil roughs up a group of muggers who are preying on a man and also saves another man from falling from a high-rise that's just been blowed up real good, but is still no closer to tracking down the mad bomber or his wife. Okay, Daredevil swinging in the window, roughing up a drug-peddling scumbag. It's a pretty par for the course now. But then, with the slightly more swash in his buckle, this scene probably played out with a bit more intensity. Daredevil's driven. He's a man on a mission, a man on the edge. He's tired. Time is a factor, since apparently the bomber is blowing things up on a schedule, and he needs to find this guy's wife to stop it. At least he has his ear to the ground, so to speak, and he knows some starting points. He knows how to network. Today, this could be done with Facebook or LinkedIn, and Daredevil would just have to hang out by the computer hitting refresh. <laughs> Poking different drug dealers. That's a little bit weird to say. But this was the 70s, which meant shaking up the underworld, turning it upside down. And he succeeds in scaring the bejeebus out of Archer Emmett right down to the core. And then we meet Joyce. Good old drug-addled Joyce, who's trying to score her fix. Rest assured, this issue was approved by the Comics Code Authority, so no threat to the family values of America. Of course, all drug dealers hang out in seedy back alleys, out of the view of the decent, hard-working folks of our country. You have to be looking for them to find them. They're certainly not in the wholesome world of video game arcades, roller skating rinks, or discotheques, where impressionable youths can gain access to them. No, you have to be a skeevy addict to lurking in the alleys. You have to go looking for the man in the flashy suit standing around waiting to push the stuff to the degenerates of the city. Yes, I'm being sarcastic. This isn't how it is in real life. Addiction is a much sadder thing to see. And many times a lot more subtle than Joyce's DTs we see here. See, addicts can function. Well, some can. Addiction doesn't just keep itself to drugs or alcohol. I just want to be clear on this. Nicotine, caffeine, a lot of other daily products available freely and easily can be addictive. Even comic books have a certain degree of addictive value. The thing is, it's a real thing. Addiction is a very real-world enemy that many face day-to-day -day with varying degrees of damage and success. Drugs and other addictive damaging substances aren't reserved for back-alley rendezvous with seedy gentlemen. They can be purchased at Safeway or the Piggly Wiggly. 
Having said that, and sounding a little bit like an after-school special, I want to add that if you are struggling with an addiction, please seek help wherever you can find it. You can overcome it. I've seen it done. But many times, this can't be done alone. Seek out AANA, any place that you can find solace and a kind hand. Run, do not walk to that. So while I'm in that area, I felt it was my responsibility to mention that, that addiction is a very serious thing. And I definitely want those that are struggling with it to know that it is not being ignored for the sake of a comic book. Now, Joyce's uh, addiction scenario in the, in, in the issue itself is extreme. It kind of goes by the numbers as far as the way drug addiction was portrayed in the media. The addict is shaking, craculating, looking for nothing but a fix, caring about nothing else but their high. Also by the numbers is the little boy falling down and beginning to bleed. Now, come on. You didn't expect nothing to come from that opening scene with the frantic mother looking for her little hemophiliac boy. Of course he was going to come into play and start bleeding at some point. And yeah, it's a bit of an eye roll moment and heavy handed, especially for a little boy whose name we don't know, but it is the aha moment. Remember when I said that the easy way to make a reader care more about your character was to give them a name? Well, Marv didn't take the easy way. And now we see why he has the ability to show us in the story. The boy has thought balloons. He has dialogue. He's somewhat somewhat fully realized for a character that amounts to basically a cipher. Yeah, he's there to be a victim of sorts and to fulfill a purpose, but Wolfman didn't need to give him a name. One, because of said cipher status. Two, because the character walks and talks. And three, because the other characters will react to him for the reader. See, we're good. We know as much as we really need to know about the boy. His name would really not sway anything either way. He's still there to bleed, carry the third act of the comic, and then we'll never see him again. Having said that, it's been a while since we last saw Daredevil in this comic. The plot is scattered. Never to the point that we can't follow, per se, but certain elements seem to be out of whack. For instance, Daredevil becomes relegated to a background character for the bulk of the book, as you're going to see. He does get to do things like beat up a group of muggers, and that scene is made of win, because Daredevil swings in, delivers some blows, and then tells the juvenile delinquents to turn themselves in, thanks to sheer intimidation, these guys do so. I mean, they're free to walk, technically. Daredevil's got bigger things to deal with. He's leaving them alone. But because of their run-in with them, they go turn themselves over to the police. That is what is called being scared straight. These kids didn't have to go to a prison and have some big bad inmate tell them how he was going to make them his bitch. Nope. Just a dude in a devil costume looking like he's having a crappy day. A proto-John McClane in red. Speaking of John McClane and... And I hate to do, I, I seem to be doing a lot of pop culture references, but this issue really does make me think of Die Hard with a Vengeance, which is a truly underrated film, despite being a step up from the previous sequel. See, there's actually a bomber, there's all kinds of crisscrossing subplots, and a villain with a personal stake in things. And there is collateral damage, like in the movie. Take the guy who escaped one of the bomber's explosions, only to find himself hanging perilously off of an I-beam. I'm sure he's glad he didn't get blowed up real good, but now he's got Buster Keaton-style problems. Luckily, and I mean luckily, despite not stopping the bomber in time, Daredevil does manage to contribute to the rescue effort by saving our poor victim, but the stress is showing. Daredevil is moody, pushing himself to find the bomber's wife as fast as possible, and the more he pushes, the less he seems to get done. He's no closer to finding the mad bomber's wife than when he started, and the clock is ticking ever ever so much faster now. Add to that, the poor little boy is still laying face down in the alley, bleeding away, even if the policemen give Daredevil some props. He's still just got this vice grip of stress squeezing away at him. Here, at the midway point, the intensity is heating up, but it feels muted a bit. It's there if you're looking for it, but by splitting the story so many ways, we lose some of the potential impact. Like, 
bridge taking weight and spreading it out is what the story does. And it spreads it out too much to really, I mean, it holds the story up, but it doesn't allow the reader across. That's great for architecture. It's a bit hard for storytelling. But as mentioned, everything's coming to a boil. Let's jump back in for the last leg of the story. Having left the alley, Joyce tries to rob a pawn shop for drug money, but the owner grazes her with a gunshot. Dejected and desperate, Joyce heads down an alley where she finds the young boy bleeding and has a flashback. Joyce once had a daughter who was killed when she got hit by a car and somehow her drug-addled mind is able to let her maternal instincts kick in and she takes the kid with her. Meanwhile, Daredevil continues to tear through the underworld as the Mad Bomber is about one hour from blowing up the biggest bomb of all. Why do I feel like ACDC should be playing there? Still, Daredevil meets with dead ends. Even more desperate, Joyce spots the pawn shop owner closing up shop and then knocks him out with a brick by surprise. Then she takes the money in the till and his gun, and the boy comes too after the robbery. And now armed, Joyce takes the boy back to see Slate, where she shoots the dealer, only nicking him, and takes the drugs. But Slate puts the word out to alert Daredevil, and one random thug does, getting Daredevil's attention with a shot in the air, gaining him a punch in the face for his troubles. Daredevil catches up with Joyce, convincing her to turn herself in, which she does, primarily to get the boy medical attention. And in the end, with Joyce now safe, the Mad Bomber gives himself up, under the condition that his wife be put in a rehabilitation facility. We find out that after the death of her daughter, their marriage fell apart, Joyce turned to drugs to cope with everything, and now she's getting the help that she needs. And with the long night over, Daredevil swings home as an older couple muses that superheroes are a nuisance, and they're only in it for themselves. What did they ever do for us? What the heck? What is up with that ending? I mean, I'm starting to start at the end. Normally I jump back, but wow. Out of nowhere... We get this guilt trip of an ending, like a Hallmark movie. Nobody understands Daredevil. I guess it's a small gripe, since the issue overall is actually pretty decent, but that's stuck with me, because it's not like it's not like this was a theme throughout the book. Yeah, it can be inferred, as Daredevil's breaking his back to stop the bomber, but couldn't that point have been made earlier or clearer? And I'm sorry for my mild tangent there. Let me come back to that as I make my point. So, Joyce decides to rob a pawn shop to get money for her fix. Clearly, Joyce isn't going to be signing up for Mensa anytime soon. I'm not a criminal, but it's rare that I go to pawn shops, primarily because it feels a bit grimy to me. It's people's stuff that they had to part with for potentially sad reasons. But, I used to go to pawn shops to look for old comics, DVDs, allegedly DVDs that most reputable retail outlets <clears throat> won't carry. And... When I went to those pawn shops, one thing was consistent. Everyone who worked there was packing a gun. Every one. Every shop. Most pawn shops sell firearms and ammunition. That's their stock and trade. They're readily abundant, and this has been the case since I was a little kid. So, she charges into the place to rob it with a knife. And the knife is, I mean, it's basically a nail file. I get it. She's desperate for some junk. So she pulls out a knife and goes for broke. And then she gets shot for her effort. Who who didn't see that coming? And then let's add kidnapping to the list of charges. Sure, the kid's lost. He's hurt. But when you see this kind of thing, call the cops. Don't walk around with a kid in your arms while he bleeds. And then knock a pawn shop owner in the head with a brick. Don't commit robbery while in possession of a kidnapped child. For the love of Pete, don't take the same bleeding kid to assault your drug dealer. I mean, at this point, I feel like I'm ending an episode of G.I. Joe here, but this is really common sense. Don't take kids that aren't yours 
while they are bleeding and then commit armed robbery and then assault. Now you know. And knowing is half the battle. So, since I haven't mentioned it yet, let's talk about Sal Buscema for a moment. He is probably most well-known for being a Hulk artist, which puts him right up my alley. His Hulk, uh, it's not my favorite. But it is the most familiar. He is to Hulk what Kurt Swan is to Superman. He's a definitive artist for the character. He's influential on Hulk, but aesthetically, he can miss the mark as much as he hits. At least for Hulk. Fact is, when you spend over 100 issues on a character's title... You become a bit of a factor in that character's basic appearance. Now, Daredevil himself is the only character from our normal cast to make an appearance in this issue. And Sal keeps him almost perfectly on model. In fact, that brings up a topic that's been rattling around in my mind as we go through these issues. These artists are from a time when the character's basic design informed the artist rather than the other way around. An artist could move from book to book and take on art chores and the art would be fairly seamless from issue to issue. Sal and some of the other post-colon artists have been able to take Colin's stamp, that house design, and approach and kind of make it work for them. It's fairly seamless. It's not perfect. They're not perfectly on point. But the same essence and mood of the comic remains true. Now, if an artist comes aboard in, these, in this time, 2013, the style guide can be thrown out. The comic conforms to the look of the artist's style, for good or for bad. There's merit to both approaches, but I lean towards the comic itself uh, kind of dictating its own feel and mood. However, to offer a balanced counter-argument, if that had been the case, if there had been that much stringent adherence to the house style, Todd McFarlane would never have revived Spider-Man's look and the sales on the Webhead's books at the same time. Let me start bringing this in for a landing, though. I was moved by the idea of Joyce's story, losing her daughter, her marriage falling apart, turning to drugs. However, I say that I was moved with a caveat. Because for me, I thought of writer Otto Bender. He wrote a ton of the Golden Age Captain Marvel stories, a lot of Silver Age Superman stories. He had a daughter who was killed when she was struck by a car, and that led to alcoholism and a decline in his marriage, and eventually his death. Through the real-life story of Otto Bender, I had a way to relate to Joyce. However, I will admit, it's heavy-handed. Which is a criticism that I give to the whole issue. The concept of a random knight in Daredevil superheroing... The idea that he's dealing with putting out fires, literally and figuratively, is appealing. I like the idea of the crisscrossing stories, but this issue doesn't ever commit fully to any of the crisscrossing plots. It divides itself to the point that the reader never fully jumps on board with any of them. We don't really get too far into Daredevil's head as he's going from Den of Sin to Den of Sin, relentlessly pounding the streets and a few heads to protect the city. And then we come back to that ending. As I said, it can be inferred from the comic that the theme is Daredevil being selfless and pushing himself to the extreme to protect his city and his people. However, it feels distant. It feels really choppy. It isn't a bad read. It's entertaining. It's compelling and somewhat intense. But I would rather this story be fleshed out. Give him a few more pages to really follow the through lines of the plots and get into Daredevil's mindset. It could have stood up to being a two-parter. I think it could have benefited from showing the Mad Bomber so the reader has a face to put with the devastation that we barely see. And we only see the results of one explosion. And I'm not saying that we should see wanton carnage. I'm not advocating that. But a bit more of what is actually at stake. In the end, this was a mediocre issue with a good concept that collapses on itself from lack of breathing room. But not a failure. Certainly not terrible. It just keeps itself from achieving something that could have been really, really good. But I would say that the random number generator did a decent job this time around. 
Here's hoping the next time I turn to it, it stays consistent. By the way, if you want to read this issue, it is only reprinted in Essential Daredevil Volume 6. Has not made Marvel Digital Unlimited yet. And now, my dear friends, I turn the floor over to you as we look at your emails and correspondence. Let the email soar! And thanks to the power of time travel, I am re-recording the email segment to comment on something a little bit later. But as such, I saw an opportunity and I wanted to make sure I cleaned out the email inbox for the end of the year so I can start 2014 fresh. So this is going to end up being a more email-centric episode than planned, and I'll be catching up on all the comments and iTunes reviews as well. In the interest of time, I'm going to just jump right in with the first email from Luke Giaconetti. Subject line, Hornhead, John Ramita, and Gene Colon. Dave, I just finished up episode number five of the podcast featuring Daredevil tangling with Captain America. And appropriately, last week I read Daredevil number two of the current series, which you referred to in the show, featuring them tangling again. Great physical matchup with these two. For what it's worth, I agree with your assessment of Cap as the alpha male of the Marvel Universe. Hornhead might have the edge in swinging across rooftops, but in a toe-to-toe fight, Cap is like a wrecking ball in red, white, and blue. In my mind, there's only a few heroes who can come close to him in physical combat, including Iron Fist, Shang-Chi, Black Widow, and yes, Daredevil. What I wanted to write you about was something I found in my local used bookstore a few weeks back. The Mighty Marvel Collector's Album entitled, Here Comes Daredevil. These albums were mass market paperbacks which Marvel put out in the late 60s, which reprinted in black and white, comics which had been reoriented for this format. This volume contains mostly Daredevil 16 and 17 and then 20 to 21 with the origin flashback from number one in between. I say mostly because there are some cuts made here and there, evidently to remove subplots or simply make the pages flow better. Unlike paperback reprints later, these are presented in almost entirely landscape format so you hold the book sideways to read. But beyond those trivialities, holy crow what a fun pair of stories. The ongoing clashes between Daredevil and Spider-Man from 16 to 17 was great. It's rare that we get to see a hero versus hero fight where Spidey is portrayed as the bad guy, but in this case it worked out wonderfully. And John Romita, man, I have seen some of his stuff on Amazing Spider-Man, but seeing him handle both of Marvel's acrobatic heroes is a real treat. He has a great sense of space and location, and as they flip and fly at each other, you get a real sense of the back and forth of the fight. Just great fun all around. Then it's time for Gene the Dean Colon to take over the pencils as Daredevil tangles with the owl on a private island. All I can say is, wow. I'm a big fan of Colon's work on Iron Man, naturally, but Iron Man is everything Daredevil is not from a visual standpoint. Powerful, heavy, solid. Hornhead by Colon is fluidity, agility, flexibility, and bounce as translated through pencils. Colon's Iron Man is like a walking, flying humanoid tank. His Daredevil is like a ballet dancer mixed with a pinball. The sequence at the beginning of this story where Hornhead roughs up the Owl's goons at his law office is just wonderful as Colon has Daredevil absolutely maul his opponents while making it look easy. These stories themselves are straightforward for Silver Age stuff, nothing spectacular from a narrative standpoint, but... I really enjoyed getting a peek at both Ramita and Colin's handling of the character, and of course this tied in perfectly with your coverage of these artists on the character as well. And these stories continue to espouse the devil-may-care swashbuckling hero approach to Daredevil, which I find myself enjoying. Thanks again for the great show. Eager to hear some more, Luke. Luke, you are darn tootin' that Captain America is the alpha male of the Marvel Universe. That's why the other heroes rallied behind him during Secret Wars. Except for those X-Men folks. They had to go off and do their own thing like a bunch of hippies. And I agree totally with your list of heroes who could go toe-to-toe with Gap. I put a lot of thought into it. I can't think of anyone I would add to that list or take away from it. The paperback sounds kind of awesome, except for the landscape aspect. 
because I think that would be a bit awkward. But I found Black and White does do some nice things for both Colin and Ramita, judging by my essential collection. Colin really is adept at adapting his style around the character that he's drawing, and then bringing a bit more to that character. And the odd thing about Colin is he is good at making violence look a bit classy, which isn't easy to do. Often we're seeing Daredevil do things to people that in all reality are pretty horrific and they would make us cringe in real life. But you have a lot of good points. I really love the ballet dancer and pinball imagery you bring to mind, though you got Miley Cyrus wrecking ball stuck in my head for a good hour or so after this. So for that, I may never forgive you. No, okay, I forgive you. And folks, be sure to check out Luke's show, Earth Destruction Directive, which is on the Two True Freaks Network at twotruefreaks.com. Also, his Hawkman blog, Being Carter Hall, which is at beingcarterhall.blogspot.com. Next up is an email from Trentus Magnus with the subject line, There Shall Come a Gladiator, Daredevil number 18. Hello, Dave. Hello, Trentus. Apologies for not writing again sooner, but I've gotten behind on all my podcasts, and I'm only just now getting caught up. I just finished Dave's Daredevil podcast episode number three, There Shall Come a Gladiator. As I write this, you've just released episode six, so obviously I'm pretty far behind. In any case, the format of your show took me off guard. I suppose I was expecting a From Crisis to Crisis style index show where you talk in-depth about each issue. Obviously, that is not the method you are using. However, I think you're making a good decision in discussing mostly the issues that jump out at you. For one thing, let's face it, some of those early Daredevil issues can be a little uneven. Oftentimes, there probably wouldn't be a whole lot to say about them. So why fight the inevitable? Second, whether this was your intention or not, it sort of reminds me of the haphazard nature of collecting when I was a kid. It was difficult or impossible to assess complete runs of anything when I was usually working from a $5 per week allowance. As a result, I maybe didn't have Detective Comics 603 to 640. Maybe I could only get handfuls of issues in that range, and if I missed an issue, that was usually it. So the scattershot nature of your show plays into that again. I don't know if that was intentional, but I can't argue that it brings out some unexpected nostalgia. As to the issue at hand, Daredevil number 18 works for me on a couple of levels. First, there's the obvious Gene Colan art. He's a titan among Daredevil artists, and there's a good reason for that. Second, as you mentioned in the show, this was the first time anybody started experimenting with darkness for Daredevil. Mind you, I don't know what dark is even supposed to mean anymore, but whatever. My point is that I don't remember an issue before this one that had so much rain and fog and atmosphere to it. It suited the story at hand, especially as this was the Gladiator's introduction. And I suppose if you want to go in the artsy-fartsy symbolism of it all, you could interpret the haze, fog, and rain encroaching upon the city as a literal representation of the myriad of secrets and hidden agendas all of the characters are carrying. They're unable or unwilling to deal with the truth, so their lives are shrouded in the fog of lies and deceit, and that's made manifest with the lousy weather, dim lights, dark shadows, and other stuff. But obviously the real explanation is that Gene Colan was one of the first, if not the first, to recognize Daredevil's potential as a character, and I don't think it's an accident Colin started his run in this way. Between the great comic, cool art, and your fun remarks, it'd be fair to say that your show in general, and this episode in particular, are awesome. Can't wait to see what's coming next. Keep it going, Magnus. I would love to say that it was my intent to recreate the spinner rack nature of early comic collecting with the show's format. In reality, it was just a way to avoid getting bored or bogged down with issues I wasn't very interested in covering. However, that is a good byproduct of the format, and since I just acquired a full spinner rack, I'm going to stuff that with Daredevil comics based on this email. Before I do that, I'm going to have to restore it, get the rust off, which brings me to the Martha Stewart moment of this episode. If you do get your hands on a rusted spinner rack, and these will run $200 and up in a lot of places, I got mine much, much cheaper. But if you do, it can be cleaned thoroughly with white vinegar and scrubbed with aluminum foil. And then you put a little enamel paint on it. That'll get the rust off and bring it back up to glory. 
So there you go. Nice little tip. Now, Trentis, as far as the fog being an allegory, sure, I'll send you no prize in the mail. I just thought it was just a good look. <laughs> I will say that your analysis actually makes me want to reread the issue a little bit deeper. And I will agree that Colin was one of the first to see the potential in Daredevil. But I don't want to give Wally Wood the short shrift because he did refine the Double D logo. He introduced the red costume, started refining the look. I believe that if Wood had stayed on the book, he would have taken it in a very cool direction. And of course he moved on and Colin mined the same potential well. But Wood may have seen that potential. However, I will give credit to Colin. Colin made it happen. While we're here, let me also plug Trentus Magnus Punches Reality, in which His Excellency, Trentus Magnus, talks all kinds of geekdom with his own special brand of reverence and anger. And that show is also at 2TrueFreaks.com. Next up is W. Blaine Dowler, another podcaster with a penchant for his first initials. And the subject line on this email is more on DD Game. And the email reads, Hi Dave, the timing on the Daredevil game was early 2000s. It was developed as a movie tie-in and the budget to get it finished fell through when the movie didn't quite hit the performance at the box office they were hoping for. Elektra was definitely intended to be a playable character. That's all I've got for you this week. Looking forward to the introduction of Black Widow next week. FYI, the upcoming Daredevil Road Warrior weekly digital comic sends DD back to San Francisco. The connection to the past may be worth mentioning. Blame. Again, this is kind of the wibbly-wobbly nature of doing a show ahead of time and why I wanted to get the email inbox cleaned out to be a little bit more up-to-date. But I definitely thank Blaine for the additional info on the game. Now, if you listeners have not been to Bureau 42, the pilot season is over. Blaine is going to be doing a show about the science behind superheroes, which I think is a stellar idea. Too bad about the new Warriors show, but still, I think it's a solid idea. And after that episode, in which I did not put the video game footage into the show post as I had predicted... I realized there was also a Game Boy game released that did tie into the movie. I had forgotten the game because, well, I never played it. I never played it because it looked awful. Now, as far as the Road Warrior comic, and actually the new Daredevil ongoing that's been announced since this email came in the inbox, yep, it's back to San Francisco, which has me conflicted. See, I felt for a long time that New York and Hell's Kitchen are almost characters in Daredevil's world, and I struggle to see him in any other city but New York. However... Looking back, yes, that did happen for a while before, and being a California-based hero will give Daredevil more of an individual identity and a new playground. We'll see how it plays out, but as Blaine mentioned, it was part of the past when he and Black Widow were shacked up, so it's not like he has no connection to the city. I also wanted to add that when I first started playing Marvel Heroes, the massively multiplayer online role-playing game, I gave it a quick whirl. I went in to get to the Hulk as a playable character as my intention was to re review it for the Incredible Hulk homepage. However, D Hulk had to be paid for. I did eventually pony up the money, but I started out as Daredevil, and my first foray, which was when the game was very first rolling out, was not very exciting. The Hell's Kitchen portion of the map was having some issues, so what you saw in the lounge was a bunch of Daredevils hanging around staring at each other. So that's been my Daredevil gaming experience so far. And in another victim of wibbly-wobbly timey-wimey, Luke returns with another email. This time the subject line is In the Midst of Life, Episode 6. Luke writes, Dave, a very moody sort of issue this time out with the Sleepy Hollow motif and creepy translucent horse. I looked up Death's Head on the excellent appendix to the Handbook of the Marvel Universe site, which you can find at www.marvun, as in Nancy, app.com. And my word, does Colin make this guy look great? 
He looks like someone who should be tangling with Ghost Rider or Morbius, not Daredevil. The fact that he is a monster created from science further makes him a strange foe for Hornhead, but hey, it was the 60s. Maybe not the most memorable baddie, but certainly a good looking one. I like your idea of some history between Paxton Page and Brian Banner. We can take it a step further and involve a young Ralph Roberts in the story as well. You may remember Roberts as the armored and later mutated X-Men and Hulk foe known as Cobalt Man, who was also a scientist researching the effects of Cobalt 60. While Daredevil never did get his own cartoon series, he did have some good guest spots on the Fox Spider-Man series. I still think it was odd that it took several years for Hornhead to pop up on the show. I mean, it's hard to swallow that even less likely guest stars, including the Punisher, Blade, and Morbius, all bowed before the man without fear. Go figure. Thanks again for the show and keep up the good work, Luke. And Luke, I had completely forgotten about Cobalt Man. I mean, can we get Mark Wade on the phone? No? Crap, there goes an awesome missed opportunity. Now, speaking of missed opportunities, why did Blade appear on the Spider-Man cartoon before Daredevil? I mean, really. Daredevil should have been at least in the first season, especially since they used Kingpin as the main heavy of the show. I'll give you Morbius. I'll give him a pass because he came from the Spider-Man world, and I can barely excuse Punisher for the same reason. Both of these characters do have roots, and Daredevil's kind of an individual character, but Daredevil and Spider-Man have such a long history, and they would have made a much better fit. But alas, it was not meant to be, and even Marvel's direct-to-video department missed the boat on what could have been a DVD movie as good as Under the Red Hood, which is DC's finest animated movie, in my opinion. I just don't get it. How do the companies not see the potential in Daredevil? He could be a superhero multi-tool across different pop culture styles, different mediums, and now the channels are there to really use him. Video games, animation, the works, Daredevil can be used for all of them and work, mainly because he has so many different sides to the character he can integrate. But he has this show... I suppose that will do for now. He also has multiple websites, manwithoutfear.com, which I highly recommend. The other Murdoch Papers, which is one of my favorite websites on the internets. So, Daredevil does have a nice fandom. I just don't know that we're being serviced correctly. But thanks for emailing in, Luke. Next up is an email from Chris Keith with the subject line DD57 or You're a rich girl and you've gone too far. Chris writes, Greetings Dave, I wanted to shoot you an email regarding the new show. I mentioned in my iTunes review that you have sprinkled a little bit of crack on the internet. The review is pending, I hope that line doesn't get me censored. And it is true. It's not to say I'm not enjoying Pad Smash, which I love, but Daredevil hits home for me. I've been a big fan since, well, a hell of a long time ago. Sadly, my first issue was in the middle of Born Again. Picture an 11-year-old kid reading Marvel Tales and probably G.I. Joe or the Transformers, and then opening up that book. Imagine going from Aunt May and Wheat Cakes to heroin and full-on crazy. It took me a while to catch up to what was really going on in Hell's Kitchen, but once I did, I really was hooked. I spent the better part of my 20s picking up a solid run from about issue 90 through the rest of the first series, including the essentials of the entire first series, and then every issue since that point. So I've read some good and some terrible, but the quest to obtain them was pure enjoyment. I still recall fondly the day that I found a store in Dallas that had a copy of 168 sitting there without a price tag. When I asked the store owner the price, he reached out to a grab a vintage 1985 comic buyer's guide, this was 1997 at this point, and charged me a substantial discount. It could be argued that I took advantage of his stupidity or carelessness, don't really care because I bought a mint first appearance of Elektra for less than 20 bucks. Anyway, with regard to the most recent episode covering DD57, I remember trying to track down this issue mainly for the cover in 1995. I guess I expected a little different Karen Page as my exposure to her was post-born again at this point. So Karen was not a secretary to me, she was a recovering heroin addict ex-porn star. Spoilers. Then I read this book, So Karen is from Money. Funny you would think that she would have mentioned that in some point in the post-born again living in squalor with Matt life. I don't recall her ever mentioning her past. This story was part of a problem I sometimes have with comics. 
Rarely is someone's parent just a regular Joe. Lois Lane, now a general. But in the old days, a farmer. Thomas Wayne Doctor, Reed Richards, the William Hartnell Doctor. It would have made sense that Karen was a waking girl in New York who left high school like Betty Brandt, but oh no, dad is Oppenheimer. Well, of course he's Oppenheimer. Matt Murdock, whose dad could have just been a palooka, but was a heavyweight title contender, couldn't be involved with a commoner. He's preoccupied with Karen, rich, Heather, rich and drunk, and Natasha, Russian super spy. Yes, he hooked up with Mila, but that did occur after a nervous breakdown. And so Garth the Butler is the villain as a red herring, just like communism. Sorry, you referenced Clue early in the show, and that line is stuck in my head for the rest of the podcast. You made a point that had me yelling out, Damn it, yes, you are so right. Roy Thomas, with all due respect, can sap the energy out of any book with his writing style. I want to like his writing, but come on, it's like listening to my grandpa tell a story three hours later, the point. Mark me down in the need some action in the first few pages category. Well, that's enough rambling for one email. I'm eagerly looking forward to the next episode as I believe that you teased Natasha. Yes, I did. Can't wait. Keep up the excellent work. The show is a must listen. Thanks, Chris Keith. First off, Chris, well done on the Hall and Oates reference. And your iTunes review did get approved. I'm going to be getting to that in just a few moments. Secondly, you jumped into Daredevil with Born Again? I mean, that had to be traumatic. Have you talked to anyone about this? Do you need an adult? Because that's got to be like a punch in the face. I had a... I wouldn't say I had a similar situation, but I read 26, and uh, I had a few odd, odd issues here and there, but I know that Born Again was on the shelf, and uh, yeah, it, it it didn't sink in at the time, <laughs> I'll say that. Now, as for getting 168 at a low price, let me say this. If a friend gets swindled a bit in a deal and undersells themselves, you owe it to a friend to say, dude, double-check that price. Be fair with your friends in dealing. However, a dealer who runs and owns a, a comic shop this is a person that does this for a living. I'm sorry, collecting is a mercenary game. There's very few loyalties, and if a dealer shoots themselves in the foot, I've never felt too bad because they should know better. That may sound harsh, but an owner-operator of a collectible store such as a comic shop has to develop a business plan. They propose that plan to loan officers, they arrange the setup of the shop, the rental, the leases. There's a lot of thought that goes into this. They know what they're investing in. And this is all before the doors open. By having this on paper, by having gone through this this thought process and commitment, they should definitely know what they're doing. It's fair game, dude. And yeah, Karen's from money, but I think by the time we got to Born Again, the money had dried up. I mean, daddy's dead. I don't know what the mom has. I don't know how much investments are involved, but I think it was gone by that point. And I think Karen, all along, was trying to distance herself from the money because of her father's controversial history. And I think that Karen was absolutely determined to make her own way, to make her own name on her own merits, which is why she took a job as a secretary at a small law firm and never mentioned the money. Now, I'll get to Roy Thomas here. Yeah, he does a lot of talking heads. But as he moved away from Marvel and into DC, with things like All-Star Squadron, he started striking a good solid balance. He's a character writer. He wants to take his time with the characters, but that doesn't always suit a story, especially a story set in Vermont. Nothing against the state of Vermont. I have zero against it. No problems at all. However, when you think of action, Vermont isn't the first state that comes to mind. But thank you, Chris, and I'll be reading your iTunes review a bit later, as I mentioned. But let me say that the term J. David Weider sprinkles some crack on the internet. I'm going to repurpose that because that is made of the awesome. Next up, let me yield the floor to Professor Allen. Professor Allen's email, 
has the subject line DD Cast, and he writes, J. Dave, I continue to enjoy the new horn-headed show. My familiarity with Daredevil is mostly from his general presence in the Marvel Universe, and I've enjoyed learning more about his solo adventures from an impassioned fan like yourself. The only run that I am familiar with is Miller's having some of these individual issues and reading most of the rest in trade paperbacks. I'm looking forward to you covering some of those stories in the coming year. Keep up the good work, Professor Allen, host the Quarter Bin Podcast, co-host Shortbox Showcase. Both of those shows, by by the way, can be found at Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. I, too, am really looking forward to covering Frank Miller's run. Now, as I usual, I have been working ahead, and I've spent a bit of my Christmas money on the second printing of the Daredevil Frank Miller Omnibus, which I'm psyched to receive. It'll be here in just a few days. I was kind of on the fence with that purchase, but I really wanted to have an Omnibus in my collection. It was something I desired, and it makes the whole writing process easier to move, as my iPad is now free, so I can actually you know, take my omnibus and my iPad somewhere and work on it. Anyway, the only issue of the original run that I actually have is issue 191, which begins my literal run of comic books. Now, those go all the way up to 317, but, you know, I'm picking up the Frank Miller stuff at the tail end. But I am working ahead. I'm having fun with these early portions. I'm knee-deep in Man Without Fear now, about halfway, a little over halfway through. I'm really excited for what will be the longest continuous run of Daredevil stories this show is likely to see. I'm excited about doing the extended run, but after that, I do want to get back to the pick and pull method but thank you professor allen our final email for the night is from socrates alvarez with the subject line digital comics to paper wish i hadn't bit my tongue when saying that i'm gonna leave that in for your enjoyment socrates writes hello dave great show as always i have a quick question your show and a friend have shown me the merit of digital comics i have not yet purchased a digital comic but i enjoy the solution to the space issue paper comics presents in the affordability of older comics in digital format compared to their paper counterparts the majority of my DD collection is volume 2 to current. I have about 100 or so DD comics before the Smith relaunch. A couple early ones like issue 8, Yay Stiltman, the Cap and Doom covers, and then 70-80 stuff I found at conventions. I like DD a lot, and I think a complete paper collection of the first volume is one of the least expensive runs in comics and very possible unlike other heroes like Batman or the Fantastic Four. I like comics mostly for the story and art, but I also like the collector aspect. I'm very happy going through back bins and garage sales. This is why I have not purchased or given digital any thought as digital adds no value to my current collection. I'm at a crossroads of some kind, as most comic collectors will soon be. I know digital is not yet taking overprint, but that possibility is now only a handful of years away when the next New 52 Marvel Now relaunch takes each universe's exclusively digital. How did you make the transfer? Do I go cold turkey? No more comic shops and only digital. Does a combination of both work better? Thanks, DD Master, Socrates Alvarez III. Socrates, let me be honest with you. You can have your print in digital too. Because I, like you, I enjoy the collector aspect. But I also really enjoy the reading. I do both. And here's why. My collection, when I finally sat down and decided what I wanted to do, how I wanted to pursue it going forward, it's now comprised of runs of comics across a certain timeline, which is 1984 to 2011. Now, this was defined by my oldest run, which is Amazing Spider-Man, which runs from 248 to 400. It's the oldest, longest, unbroken run. Now, Action Comics, I think I have more comics in, but this is where I defined the beginning. And 2011 is where the new 52 happened. As far as how I got into it, the New 52 is really responsible for that. That was when digital became a logical way to get those books, not only because of the day and date conversion, but because by testing out the waters, I didn't have to jerk my LCS around. I could try new books without having extra issues sitting around, and if they got dicey, dropping them wasn't a big deal. Because if you're operating a pull list, normally they're several months out, and I don't want to do that. Now, this has had some problems along the way, but only in my CDO way, and that's OCD in proper alphabetical order. Adjusting to digital can be tricky. And between the two mediums, 
there are pros and cons. For example, I pulled out an issue of Secret Wars the other day, which had a splash page in the first issue. While I had read the issue digitally, pulling it open had some merit to the art. And my, what I would advise is choose a title to peek at digitally, see how you like it, start expanding from there. Choose some titles you might want digitally, the older stuff go print. And may I suggest the Daredevil Road Warrior digital only series as a great way to get your feet wet and give you kind of a taste of the Comixology app, which is the primary app you'll want to buy your digital comics from. Let me also offer an additional tip here for anybody just now entering into the digital field. When you're looking at either Google Play or iTunes store, app store, DC has an app, Marvel has an app, you only need the Comixology app as both of the company's specific apps are clones of this one. You can have all your digital comics on one app. Don't throw out your print comics. Those are fun. The back issues are fun to collect, but you might choose a time period to start getting digital going forward. I will say this. The merit of digital is you don't get the stink eye when you're reading them in public. As I said, that was the last email. I do have a comment from daredevilpodcast.com, which you can leave individual comments on the show postings. This one is from our good friend Russell Bragg, who writes great shows, five and six. Sorry I didn't get my email in last week. Christmas is a busy time of year. Yes, it is. I have enough time to listen while at work, but little for anything else except buying, decorating, and eating Christmas cookies. Thanks for helping me learn more about Daredevil and keeping me entertained. Continued success, Russell Bag, Clarksburg, West Virginia. And you know, Russell, I really am happy because I've been getting a lot of positive response. I'm loving that people are enjoying the show. It makes me enjoy it that much more. And that hopefully, like you, they're getting something out of it. And Russell, I do want to let you know and let everybody know Nobody's obligated to email every episode. If life gets busy, take your time. And then, by the way, Russell, I do hope you had a very Merry Christmas. I forgot to get back to you. Uh, but, as I said, nobody's obligated. You don't have to email in every week. I like your emails. I like having them being part of the show. I want to talk with other fans. But they're appreciated. They're not obligations. And if you are listening and you're thinking you might want to drop an email, you can do so with the address Dave at DaredevilPodcast.com. Random thoughts are invited and entertained. And of course, there is a contact form at daredevilpodcast.com that can make that a little bit easier. Also, if you dig the show or if you hate it, you can leave a review of the show on iTunes. Please do so if you, if you don't mind. It helps the show get noticed. It reaches other fine listeners such as yourself. And that is a perfect segue to reading the latest iTunes reviews, which I've been a bit slacking on. For the sake of time, I'm going to go through these reviews without comment. Other than I want to say up front, I'm very touched. I appreciate each and every review. But due to time, I'm just going to go through these, and I uh, appreciate you taking time to rate the show. Going in chronological order, on November 30th, 2013, Clarksburg Russell left a review entitled, I wouldn't give this podcast a DD, I'd give it an AA. And this is, as they all are, is a five-star review. And the review reads, Coming into this podcast, I knew virtually nothing about Daredevil, but knowing who was hosting the show, I knew listening to Dave's Daredevil podcast would help me learn more about the character. J. David Weeder is a very engaging speaker. He gives a great synopsis on whatever issue he's presenting. He brings humor, personal history when necessary, and just makes learning about Daredevil fun. I'm enjoying what I'm hearing. If you want to know more or anything about daredevil come to dave's daredevil podcast you'll be glad you did as mentioned and to spare my throat a little bit as it's starting to get a little bit rough these are all five star reviews which is phenomenal next up december 1st 2013 rubik four left a review entitled dave devil the podcaster without fear and it reads love this podcast this reminds me of j david weeder's other podcast pat smash where a Dave shares his love of, com of a comic book series with you. This time around, his love of Daredevil comes through, and it feels like sitting in a coffee shop discussing key issues. It's a trip down memory lane or a teaching of issues that were too expensive to own. Fun stuff. Keep them coming. And thank you. And then on December 3rd, UMBC 81 
Lefty Review, entitled Fun, Lively Podcast, and he writes, This is a fun, exciting show about one of Marvel's underrated heroes. Highly recommended. And then on December 10th, the Keith0902, which I think we know is Chris Keith, left an email entitled Hit the Subscribe Button. It is on the left. And he writes, Dave Weeder just sprinkled a little bit of crack on the internet with his latest podcast extravaganza. Daredevil has always been a favorite, and the presentation of this show is exceptional. The enthusiasm that exudes from this show just makes every new episode a must-listen. The show takes various issues from the entire history of DD, adds some of the history of the characters or the Marvel Universe, and various interesting antidotes, and makes it informative and fun. Try it out, and you will agree. And thank you for that. And then, on December 12th, we got a review by Armless Not Harmless, entitled Daredevil's Do. And they write, I try to take a broad view of things, which is not too easy because I'm inclined to look closely at the details. Fortunately, I do not have to try with Dave's Daredevil podcast because he takes a broad and a close view for me. Old issues and new, creative side and reader side, story and art, super job, I hope to hear lots more. And then the final iTunes review is by Socrates in Miami. It was December 24th, 2013, Christmas Eve, entitled Great Podcast. And this review reads, the format is fantastic. A half hour review of a single issue, more or less, is perfect. The episode format is stronger than an index show as the show jumps around issue to issue according to Dave's selection. Important developments for Daredevil or the supporting cast members. A plus also for listener feedback as Dave has a section devoted to listener email. And again, thank you all for emailing. Thank you all for your iTunes reviews. Please continue to do so. I like hearing from you, even if my voice is starting to give out on us. And I for- and please forgive me if that's causing me to talk a little bit faster. I'm just trying to get everything out before my voice completely goes for about an hour after this. And as we wrap the episode and the year 2013, I, I do again want to say thank you all for making these first nine episodes excellent. I'm looking forward to where we're going to be this time next year. But as this episode was getting ready to air... And the reason I re-recorded it is we were treated to one final bit of information that was brought to my attention. And though I take this with a grain of salt, comic book resources brought to light a story that the Avengers, you know, the massive multi-billion dollar franchise of comics, film, and merchandising, may have had their genesis in Daredevil, sort of. The source is a pretty solid one. It's Tom Briefport, the vice president of publishing at Marvel. And the story goes that Bill Everett was so far behind on Daredevil's first issue that it wasn't going to make its print schedule originally. This left a big gap of paid-for printing time. And to salvage that money, Jack and Stan brainstormed and put the Avengers together to put out in its place. Now, I had to think this through to figure out if this is something tangible, real, something that's worth chewing on. And again, I do have a certain degree of, of doubt. Mainly because Stan Lee's telling of events surrounding the Avengers was different, but then... Stan Lee's a storyteller, he's a salesperson, he's a great guy who just celebrated his 91st birthday, but this scenario makes sense and explains why Daredevil was released at the tail end of Marvel's first wave of books. Logically, the company would not want to lose this money. It doesn't grow on trees, after all. They had some characters sitting around who could be thrown together, the Hulk wasn't doing too much, and there wasn't a whole lot of creative work that had to be done, nothing new had to be created. So when you look at it, Loki's thrown in the mix, the heroes fight, they team up, decide to become a team, I buy it just because of the way the story came together and subsequent issues changed tone and, and shifted directions. And I kind of wonder what could have changed if Daredevil came out at the same time as X-Men. Would the appeal have been there? Would he still be a second stringer? What if there had never been an Avengers? But in the end, my greatest feeling is that we ended up getting both, and I think that's awesome. It may have been a fluke, but we got Daredevil and the Avengers. And of course now Daredevil is an Avenger, 
along with pretty much everybody else in the Marvel Universe. In the last few years, it feels like Oprah has been giving away Avengers memberships. Look under the seat, it's a Quinjet! You're an Avenger, you're an Avenger, you're an Avenger! But there you go, a bit, a bit of cool news coming down the pike to wrap 2013. I definitely wanted to notate that, and I wanted to make sure we did clean out the email inbox. But next week is it! 2014 begins with Frank Miller's revisionist take on Daredevil's origin in the five-part Man Without Fear, which sets up the year-long read-through of Miller's Daredevil work, you know what, folks? Please be safe out there if you're having New Year's libations. Enjoy them responsibly. Have a DD or a cab. See? DD, designated driver, not daredevil. Until next time, remember justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. They call a man without fear. Never far away when everything is near. Dave's Daredevil Podcast is a Nat World production. The show's archives can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. To subscribe to the show, you can visit iTunes where you can leave a review, which helps the show get noticed. Or there's a handy RSS link at the website to use the podcatcher of your choice. The show is released every Sunday on all formats and emails are welcome. The address is dave at daredevilpodcast.com. While you're at it, why not friend the show on Facebook? It's easily found by searching for Dave's Daredevil Podcast or just Daredevil Podcast if you're into the whole brevity thing. The important note I'd like to make is I don't make any money off of Daredevil or any Marvel property because they are copyrighted characters that are fully owned by Marvel Comics and their parent company, Disney. I just do this to entertain, so any and all music or sound clips are for entertainment purposes only, and the copyright still belongs to the copyright holder. No infringement is intended. So please, don't sue me. It's all in good fun, and it's all for the love of comics and the love of Daredevil. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next week. Tonight.